y'all. Um, we are going to be sort of wrapping up our excursus into looking at artificial reproductive technologies um, by taking a look at something I guess maybe traditionally we wouldn't look at in bioethics, but the fertility industry as a whole, specifically um, sperm and egg donation, and some of the interesting moral conundrums that are brought about by this practice. Um, and I think I would like to have some discussion on this because I think industry is the key word. That this really has become an industry, a large profit-making endeavor. Um, and so here, it's one of the chances that we're going to be able to see to a great degree, that intersection between bioethics and Catholic social teaching. <clears throat> um, because right now, venture capitalists, private equity, are investing heavily in the fertility industry, heavily in the fertility industry, which means that as private companies begin to take over and invest more money in this, you, first of all, they, they think that it's going to grow and they are going to make it grow. And I think probably you're going to see more and more of it over the course of the time of your priesthood, unless there is some type of a sea change in regards to it. So I want to start, though, by looking at just some statistics, again, that I found online. I, I realize because this, this industry is not very well regulated, uh, they're discrepancies, at least that I found, on some of the statistics about how prevalent this is, but I tried to do my best to give um, an estimation kind of down the middle of what a lot of this costs or what the reality is. So what percentage, let's see if we can guess, what percentage does it seem that, at least in the United States, and maybe you can extrapolate to across the world, what percentage of men and women have fertility in issues? How are we that? Well, I've struggled, struggled to conceive. I think it's a, a little high. It seems to be about 10%, 10 to 12%. At least in the U.S., though, it says, and again, these are from different websites, 12% of U.S. women seek fertility treatment. And so about one in 10 women um, are going to seek some type of fertility treatment, which highlights again, as we talked about last week, what a cross, what a struggle infertility is for so many women, particularly seeing so many of their friends having children. And as they get older, uh, that desire to have a child um, and so there seems to be a fair amount of societal pressure, peer pressure. Maybe it's just sort of pressure they put on themselves. Regardless, there is a large market for IVF and other fertility treatments. It's out there. And you are going to encounter it. Another sign of this, and which actually potentially is a good, song, a good thing, that women are becoming more and more aware of their own fertility, of their own bodies, is what is called the Femtech Revolution. So if you go on your app store, there are tons of apps 
to help women to monitor and be more aware of their fertility. One of the more popular ones, and has been, is an app called Flow, um, which helps women sort of become more aware of their, their menstrual cycles and their own fertility. And, and I think, as probably Dr. Caldwell would agree, this is a good thing, um, that women are becoming more aware of their fertility, but still, it is a way to be able to profit and to make money. Uh, none of these apps, if they're free, they're making money by advertising. How else do these apps and stuff like that on your phone make money? By selling, for collecting your data and selling it. So it's a private thing, it seems, but these companies, and who knows who it is, have data on women's fertility cycles, uh, which you can about believe chances are of these fertility clinics or different organizations purchasing some of this information as data and using it to sell you products uh, and things like that. So, uh, but just remember, this is a factor, of course, of just in life in general, but um, big data is there. What is it, what does it cost? We talked a little bit about this. Uh, IVF, it seems to cost about 10 to $20,000 per cycle of transfer, uh, depending again on the number of regimens that you need to hyperovulate and the hormones you need to take. And of course, it takes multiple cycles. And as a result, if the first cycle doesn't work and you may have to get more eggs or whatever, it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to be able to have a child. And, and where does that money go? It goes off into the doctor's pockets, yes. Is this now covered by insurance companies? Generally, no. Okay, that's the point of it. Generally, it's not. However, however, mostly here's the thing. There, there's a trend now where companies are allowing you to, larger companies, part of the benefits package. Yeah, as a employer would. Will companies, I mean, insurance companies potentially start providing for this? Possibly. But right now, from what I gather, very few do. It's mostly going to be an elective procedure, and you're going to pay out of pocket, which means what? Rich people can afford it. Very rarely are poor people going to be able to afford this. The other thing that is becoming more and more popular that I guess we can discuss is the freezing of oocytes, the freezing of eggs. Sort of that same process where the eggs are harvested and women when they're young are frozen in order to be able to be implanted later um, when the woman is a bit older and maybe has her career settled to be able to have a child. That cost, again, it looks about eighty to $20,000 per cycle, and it often takes two or more cycles to be successful. What does the church have to say about freezing eggs? No. Dignitatis Personae, number 20. In this regard, it needs to be stated that cryopreservation of oocytes for the purpose of being used in artificial procreation is to be considered morally unacceptable. The same way that freezing your sperm is going to be sort of morally unacceptable. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about that later, but it is becoming, and a lot of the articles that I read in the fertility industry, not only the offering IVF at these clinics, 
Many of them are offering freezing of eggs, particularly the benefit packages of some of these bigger companies where they're trying to hire women in the workplace. Hey, freeze your eggs, give us 10, 15 years of work, and then you can go and maybe have a baby. Um, so, but there are problems that come along with that, which we're going to see. So there's a lot of money to be made, particularly if you remember how many people are seeking this out. We talked about a few weeks ago, the preliminary national, a few days ago, the preliminary national data for 2020 shows that 73,602 babies were born from IVF, resulting in 301,000 cycles performed during that year. So take that 301,000 and multiply it by 10 to $20,000, you have a lot of money that was made. A lot of money that was made. And so what it does is it spells out a large market and a lot of profit. The, the, the most consistent figure that I found said that in the fertility industry, whether it be IVF, uh, egg freezing or whatever, they're going to be by 2026, 41 billion dollars in sales worldwide. 41 billion dollars in sales worldwide. So it's not just in America, it's in Europe and other countries too. Right now, there are 500 fertility treatment facilities in the US, many of them being bought up by or invested in by private equity seeing that there's going to be a market of this in the future and wanting to to sort of make that investment um, and again insurance is not going to pay but things are changing right now 40 percent of major companies it seems make fertility care uh, as part of their benefits package for these employees so i think you're going to see this more and more change will <laughs> insurance take over possibly, but right now it's a, it's a gift of privilege. Only the rich can really afford it. What do y'all think of these statistics? And what do you think the future holds? Just your own opinion. Actually, one of the clarifying questions, when we say a fertility clinic, mm -hmm. do we include something like a NAPRO program? I, I, I'm gonna guess no, I'm gonna guess no. However, I don't know how many of these NAPRO fertility clinics are there. I'm guessing from what they're talking about, what I read, it would be one that does, I mean, maybe there are there in the, they're in there, but they're gonna be a small minority. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be ones that have IVF or the freezing of the eggs. Yeah, uh, I don't know if they included this into their um, guesses and their estimation on what will be in the future, but just given the, the fact that the pill as we, we see that it causes infertility and just there's a rise in infertility uh, who knows from what other stuff, whatever we eat, whatever, that's causing a rise in infertility that I imagine that it'll just continue to rise with the use of IVF in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good question. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. Not only the impact of the pill and its cause of infertility, but just the, the how the pill is connected to this. Um, we're, let's let's give that hold that that thought because we have a whole section that I like to generate somewhat of a discussion about. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. I mean, these are things that are 
I think we keep in mind that there's money to be made, there's potential exploitation of individuals or certain subsets, and that it's going to be something that if private equity is investing in it right now, you're going to see a potentially exponential growth of these over the course of the next 10, 15 to 20 years, particularly if the moral compass of America doesn't shift. We're going to get back to some of those bigger questions, but I do want to take this time to look at what we're talking about here is a woman who freezes her own eggs or a couple that freezes uh, their own embryos. What about the issue of sperm and egg donation? Sperm and egg donation, yes. Yes, so I have my uncle work in the U.S. hospital in California, and he told me the, the people come to the hospital, they donated sperm and egg, and then the hospital sell it. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So that's why my uncle, he's quit his job and coaching at the hospital. But it's, he said to me, behind the curtain, that's a lot of black market, because it's like they they divide which the egg and sperm is really good, high quality, intelligent, so they sell a different amount. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, you're 100% you're correct. And this is what we're going to get into is that there is a bigger industry of this too. So we're, uh, thanks for bringing it up. It's a perfect example of how this is happening. Yes? Well, I just wanted to mention, like, in one of the articles you had to read, it was talking about how, like, uh, there's a market for approaching particularly, like, college-age women to sell their eggs so that way they can get profit, you know, pay for tuition and all that. Oh, yeah. I don't remember seeing it. I can't remember a, a clear example of seeing when I was at LSU. Maybe I just didn't walk around in the areas where they were promoting it. But, I, I mean, it makes total sense. Oh, yeah. And not only then, but also potentially women in third world countries. So a lot of this is going to get into the question of organ donation and organ transplantation, uh, which the church has said some pretty definitive things on. And in general, the church is going to be opposed to commodifying the body and selling your organs. We're going to get into this more later. Just a quote from John Paul II. Any procedure which tends to commercialize human organs or to consider them as items of exchange or trade must be considered morally unacceptable because to use the body as an object is to violate the dignity of the human person. Now, are we talking about um, donating organs here? No. What are we talking about donating? We're talking about donating genetic material which the church is going to be even more specific on because of the connection it has to the individuality and the dignity of the person, um, this donation of, and particularly the selling of, commercializing genetic material is not going to be acceptable. So let's take a moment to look at, at sperm donation. Of course, what is the base, basic principle that's going to mean that sperm donation is not going to be considered acceptable in the church. It's outside of the act, it's of the act. yeah. It's, it's probably resulting in heteronomy. Yes, exactly, and probably also connected to masturbation. Um, so this is not going to work at all. It looks like the going, again, for college students possibly too, the going rate for a sperm donation is 100 to $150 per donation. So in 2010, 
the most recent year for which good data is available, some 30 to 60,000 babies born in the U.S. were conceived through sperm donation out of approximately 4 million babies <clears throat> born in the, uh, the U.S. that year. True. You th there are rules that you are supposed to track the donors, at least in the U.S. Uh, but it is poorly regulated. Um, Yes, but that, like, she got pissed because obviously she just they, she found out like her children have like over a hundred or two hundred half brothers sisters that this guy bothered all these children. I'm like, well, yeah, that's the thing I'm saying. I'm like, well, what did she? You found this guy online, mm -hmm. and you did. And, okay, look, I'm not a woman, and so no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know like, what goes through. Because like you had said the other day, this is all they think about when they want a kid. And they don't they don't think, you know, hindsight 2020, you don't think, oh, wow, this guy probably, yeah. right. And so it's like, and it's like, it just seems mind-boggling that she got mad about it, which I guess she has every right to. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're getting it on the internet, particularly in other countries where even though there may be regulations, is it... It's like the abortion industry is supposed to be regulated. Is it really regulated or is it up to the health standards of most medical clinics? No, it's just not. And so, yeah, you have a case like if you read that article about the serial sperm, sperm donor, this guy, Jonathan Jacob Meyer, uh, <clears throat> was going around and supposedly in the Netherlands, his sperm helped to conceive maybe 170 to 300 kids. That's just in the Netherlands. What are some potential problems with that? And especially in a very small, limited country like the Netherlands. Oh, absolutely. You're dating, you could be dating your brother or sister. You don't know. So people follow lawsuit on this guy and say you have I don't know. What, I, I have no idea what the laws, because that's the thing is I have no idea what the laws are in the Netherlands. But right now, even if it was out of the Netherlands, he can go online and donate it in different countries. So you see, because of our understanding of the fact that, hey, in a small, very limited population like the Netherlands, you put 170 half-brothers and sisters out there, guess what? They're going to end up dating each other, meeting each other online, particularly in the world in which we live today, causing lots of problems. A guy my dad knew in college had donated sperm with like money or something like that. And uh, just, you know, just off a joke, well, years later, one of his kids took 23 and me. Oh, yeah. And then it showed up. I did like several siblings. We got a doctor and everything. And then those people started like calling and showing up to his house. And then it was like a whole thing with his family. For, like, why do you have other children, so it just unraveled into this like, nightmare. 
And with genetics, now with genetics research and 23andMe, anyone can do this. So you can trace back who the father is. One of the big, what's one of the other bigger issues? I didn't put an article on there. There have been a number of lawsuits where these fertility clinics that sell, these sperm donation clinics, where the doctors are selling high-grade sperm, because you can go in there and you can choose, I want from an athlete, or I want the sperm from a doctor, or whatever. Well, the doctor's just giving his own sperm. He's the one doing it. Uh, And impregnating all these people. Um, uh, Granted, there is an idea of technological control, of choosing choosing this elite athlete or, or scholar. But what else, what are other problems uh, could, could arise from this? Do you, go ahead. It could be this development of a certain, so the Danish, I was already, I started looking into the Danish industry. Women all over the world think Viking sperm, quote, is... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I want to do is I want to I want to show I want to illustrate another point of this through this. Because y'all gonna think this is crazy? But I've made aware of a few years ago, and I, I got a, a video to show y'all of this very liberal Jewish American from New York comedian actress who has a TikTok page with about a half a million followers, and most of her stuff is against the fertility industry, particularly sperm donation. And so I'm gonna show, I can't say that all of her videos are clean, I don't know, I haven't watched all of them, she has a lot of them, but I, I wanna show you one of them. She goes, I forgot, her, I don't know her full name, but she goes by Laura High Five. And, and just listen to this woman's argument that she makes using comedy, but it is pretty <laughs> decent argument. Listen to what she has to say. I have never once said this statement in earnest, but today is the day. I am not angry. I am disappointed. You claim to be a medical professional, but I can tell by your comment that you do not know how the infertility industry works. And doing that on my page is not a good idea. So let's start, shall we? When I was 19 years old, I called the infertility doctor that created me. I told him if possible, I'd like to know who my donor is. If not, I'd like to know my medical history to know if I carry any genetic diseases such as cancers or anything like that. He first told me that my donor was anonymous and he could never give me that name, nor did he know who the donor was. He then told me that it would be impossible for him to hand me over a medical history because the clinic does not exist anymore because it went up in a fire. Donor can see people, please pop off in the comment section to let everybody know how often the infertility industry says that our papers went up into a fire. But my mom's infertility doctor said I had nothing to worry about because the donor was completely healthy, there was no genetic diseases, nothing. This was all a lie. My donor absolutely has genetic diseases. I found three donor-conceived siblings so far, and two of them we've compared medical records. And they do not look good. The health issues that we are having look like they are genetic. Guess from whose side? Oh, and by the way, my infertility doctor and my donor absolutely know each other. They were residents at the same hospital, and their offices were a block from one another. Not enough proof for you? Let me tell you more. My mother was ovulating on a holiday weekend, so the clinic was closed. My infertility doctor arranged for a donor to drop his specimen off at a hotel concierge desk for my mother to pick it up and then inseminate it herself. It was fresh, not frozen. 
My mom saw who dropped it off. This was during a weekend during a holiday, so there's no way anyone from the clinic would have actually ever dropped this off. It was the donor himself. This is a huge favor to ask, one that you can only really ask of a friend. So he absolutely knows who the donor is. But I digress. Let's even say the infertility handed me over my medical history. I have no guarantee that it would actually be accurate. Currently, right now, the Donor Conceived Persons Protection Act is trying to get passed federally. Do you know what that is? law that would require clinics to verify all the medical records that a donor has in, because donors are famous for lying about their medical history, you know, being 19-year-old college students and everything. Oh, and by the way, no state has also passed the Donor Conceived Persons Protection Act, so this is a pretty big national issue. Oh, in case anyone's new here, my donor is an OBGYN in New York City. He donated for at least six years, and in five years we sent him two emails and a letter. Oh, and for anyone who's going to pop up in my comments and saying, well, he's scared you're coming after him for child support, congratulations, you're good at reading headlines but not articles. I have videos about it here. Don't clog up my comments with your misinformation. Thank you. But the point is, my donor is a doctor and understands how important having a full medical history is. And yes, I am aware that I'm not entitled to his medical history. Why do you think I'm making these videos? It has been made very clear to me that a donor's anonymity matters more than a donor-conceived person's life. Hence all the advocacy. And since he consented to the process and profited off his biological children very well, I think it's okay if I keep bugging him a little bit. I have never once had this... She has tons of videos on TikTok, which you can write. Dude, she, she's an actress and a comedian. I, I, like, how do you know? You've, do, you've been donated by some sperm from an anonymous donor. How do you know what the medical history is? Not even the donor's medical history. What about stuff that he doesn't know? What if he carries the gene for Parkinson's or something? Do you think that the kids who are conceived by sperm have a right to know who this is, what their medical history is? Yes. Yes. You know, these are, <clears throat> the point is it's bringing up these very complicated questions that I think maybe people don't consider or don't think about. I don't know much about this Donor Conceived Protection Act, um, but there is justice not only for, let's say, the person who does this, is this a really good thing to do, a right thing to donate your sperm, but what about the children to come from it? Um, what about egg donation? Five to $10,000 per egg the woman donates. Again, as you saw, they're often approaching college-age women to make a little extra money to be able to provide for that. Go, go online if you want to look up the Golden Egg Donation website. I may have put that on there. You did. Yeah. You did. I it did. I watched that like videos. I was like, this, I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, so here, this is not regulated. This is the internet. Come, donate your golden eggs. Where are they coming from? Uh, a lot of the same problems from the sperm donation um, site. Is there a potential of exploitation of women in developing countries to be able to sell this genetic biological material? What did you think of the Golden Egg site there, Teresa? Well, I just have never heard that before. I mean, I've definitely heard of people selling their eggs, but the site itself was beautiful. I mean, it's very well designed. I was almost amused, like the pictures of the women. I did, I was like, well, I wanna see what the donors look like. So I like, clicked all through it. And it's pictures of them from the back like, of, by a sunset, or with a graduation cap on, or with muscles, like they're a tennis player. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen such a thing. Like a catalog. Yeah. It's... It was, it was bonkers. 
<laughs> and then truthfully, the woman in charge of it was, I, I mean, you kind of were sympathetic to her. She had, she's well-spoken, she has children in the video with her, you watch the video, and she's basically telling you, like, you're giving someone else life, like you're giving the gift of motherhood, and it's just, it's very touching. Mm-hmm, the appeal to emotion. Uh, yeah, but it's not stuff. <coughs> she's also, like, filming it somewhere in Maui or something. She's, like, on a mountain. But that's not the only website. There are other websites out there. There are plenty of places where you can donate your eggs to the it. And now you're seeing hospitals are doing it. What do you all think? What do you all think of this? This whole aspect, this industry of buying and selling. How would how would you address it? If let's say a young college girl came up to you and said, "Father, I'm having a hard time paying for college. My my dad parents are paying for it, so I'm gonna go sell some ooh sites." First thing I'll do is call out the vanity child culture going on. Mm-hmm. Like we post our baby reveals all over the internet. There's so much BS vanity child stuff on on social media. So when parents are taking their kids, which the, the actual enjoyment and the the love you experience having a kid is totally separate from the little hit of ego you get by showing the world on Instagram about your kids. Those are totally different. So the irony is like this whole ego ego trip of commodifying and spreading our kids around in a in a way that's fundamentally ego-based and vanity-based. And the kids don't even have a choice. I mean, they're just getting put up there as, as social coinage on media for likes. So this whole thing is like warping people's minds to the, to the, to the extent they think that babies are going to solve their problems. And if you have a baby thinking it's going to solve your problems, it won't. Mm-hmm. And it's going to just be bad for the kid. It's just a terrible. So I, the first thing I do is address that because once you take care of that, you can start talking to them about some deeper things going on. Because yeah, the baby isn't going to solve it. And the other thing is, of course, you got to talk about what a child actually deserves and what really is going down when you have to get out of wedlock and all those things. Well, that's a, that's part of what we'll mention a little bit later on. The narcissism inherent in a lot of this. I have all these issues. I want this child to resolve my problems to make me feel better about myself. I want to display my child, really commodify his looks in a culture that is fascinated by youth and by beauty. So advertising also connects into that in our own mindset of, of our life. We, we live like we're on social media. Everyone's looking at us, watching us to put our life on display. It's reality TV. One thing is, as God willing to sell the priest, I would have a lot to say about the, the life-giving aspects of Love. I mean, that's not that's not biological. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a beautiful platform for dealing with all sorts of issues that surround this. Being someone who's sought after and found meaning without children, spiritual child, you know, spiritual father, spiritual mother. I think that's that gives you a huge amount of uh, ethos to speak of. Absolutely. And so, what is what is truly valuable? What else do y'all think, fellas, ladies, sister? What do you think? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. As as the kids get older, let's say they begin to have more medical problems. Are there lawsuits on the horizon? So how do we, though, address the problem of infertility then? Um, you know, it's a, a real struggle. There's no doubt about it at all. And the church doesn't say, oh, well, you're infertile, do nothing. We can assist the process or work to remove obstacles. And we've seen so clearly what the church's teaching is on that about respecting the integrity of the human person, uh, about the marital act, and about the good of marriage in itself. <clears throat> and, and I think, though, it's going to be important to have pastoral sensitivity. We can't just say, hey, you know, don't have IVF. Be able to listen to the couple, listen to the woman who is struggling with this, and to be able to gradually accompany her, or both of them, and guide them to the proper point. There is a website I think I put on there called Springs in the Desert, which is a ministry that I found to infertile uh, couples. <clears throat> Maybe you could guide them to the, them to say, hey, here are other couples who struggle with this. You're not alone. Um, and there is, of course, going to be, hopefully, God willing, uh, some type of solution to your problem. If not, I mean, of course, I guess we could talk about adoption, and we could talk about other um, other options that you have. What about some moral issues? I mean, we kind of brought up a lot of these. The question of pro privilege of mainly the wealthy being able to afford this. Yes, Teresa, go ahead. No, that's good that he's be, he's being aware of those things. Really it's a great pastoral sensitivity to, to not bring those two groups uh, into, into contact. Of course, we have the companies potentially preying on vulnerable women for profit, private equity, collecting and selling data. But here's the thing that I, I really would like to ask y'all to reflect upon. Do y'all notice this irony in our culture where, as we've highlighted the past week or so, we have a, a significant amount of women out there who are struggling with fertility for different reasons, and it is tremendously painful, and we are called to have a pastoral response. But on the other hand, we have a culture that says very vehemently, hey, ladies, go abort your children. 
this is a great thing. I have a right to abort my children. And where 90% of people, married couples, contracept. I don't want a child right now. And they're, they're choosing contraception. They have the contraceptive mentality. These are seeming to me to be two completely polar opposites. How can they exist? Is it an irony? Is it a paradox? Are there, is there some connection that I'm not aware of? As I reflected on this and put these notes together, why, why is this? How can the two exist together? It's, it's a desire. It's what? I want a kid. I don't want a kid. It has nothing to actually do with the kid. It has everything to do with what you want when you want it. That's mm-hmm. all it is. So if you don't want a kid, you have an abortion. If you don't want a kid, you go to a fertility clinic. It's, it's just want. And the society and people will are trying to cater to that. And so that way they will give you every option that you can to control what you want to do. Whether it's a free market, baby. Right. And they will give you the resources to either not have a kid or to have a kid. Which I think if you <clears> – <throat> that goes back down then to we live in – was it? There's a, uh, the anatomy of desire. We as humans have desires for things. And 100 years ago, you could desire to have a kid. And you couldn't. Well, there was no way to fulfill that desire. But now there is. You could desire to not have a kid. Well, there was no way to fulfill that desire, at least safely or effectively. Now there is. So how are those desires met? By the free market? By uh, consumer products? I mean, here, people are making money off of it. They're providing a product to you. And by by the product existing, you then are increasing your own desire regardless of what spectrum of this child or no child desire that you have. Because I'm not really putting that well, because I'm thinking out loud here. But yeah, I think a lot of it is this. It's not just desire, it's desires connected to and generated by a consumeristic culture. Uh, um, I just saw something where uh, Jennifer Aniston, she waited too late to have children. Now she really wants children. So it's kind of like Joe was saying, there was a time in her life when she probably could have had children. We're going to get to that in a couple of minutes. Okay. Yeah, no, we're, that's exactly it. So I, I think that there's something right there that we have this, this whole dichotomy exists because our consumerist Western culture is there to say you can have all of your desires fulfilled. There is a way to have your desire fulfilled no matter how disparately opposite they appear to be we're going to be able to provide this far away for you. So that ties back to the egoism, the narcissism um, that is rampant in our culture. What about other society is- societal issues? I do think you can see here all of this, not only an impact of consumerism, but also the technocratic paradigm. One of the, the things that Louise Perry made in a book that, some of, that I recommended to you all last year, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, why are women freezing their eggs? Why do these companies, when they hire a woman, why are women, why do women want to freeze their eggs? Por qué? Why? So it's like, a, like an insurance policy, just in case something happens, I still have these eggs. True, but why else? Because the feminine isn't honored 
and motherhood isn't honored in our culture. So they think to get self-worth, they're put on these tracks. Like high-achieving women are so fed the ideals of, of essentially high-powered careers and money being the, so, so I think, first of all, they come from a, a family background where they weren't nurtured or there wasn't, there wasn't an experience of motherhood personally. So you don't have this innate understanding of it in your, in your like, psychological imprint. And then they go out there and they start to be told by everybody that to be an achiever, especially like teachers, for instance, the ego hit teachers get from kids just giving their all for them, like just completely unbalanced, achieving AP class stuff. There's just this whole culture of, of achievement equals worth. And um, there's no room for the things that come naturally from who you are, especially motherhood, because that's something that you don't achieve, you can't control, it's just a gift. So we don't, we don't value gifts, we don't value anything like that. But when are the women encouraged to achieve? At what age? <clears throat> Sorry, pretty young. So hey, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a degree, and you're going to have a career. And, and as we talked about, there's nothing objectively wrong with a woman having a career. So the woman begins working when she's 22, 23 years old at her career. What is the main thing that would stop her from growing or advancing in her career? Pregnancy. Pregnancy. So the woman says, I want to, I'm 22 here. I want to have my career. And so when I'm 23, I'm going to freeze my eggs so that I can have a good 10, 15 years. I can make money. I can be successful. And then I'm going to have it implanted when I'm 35 or when I'm 30. Give them, you know, or 32, whatever. What's the problem? You're not actually going to do that. You're just telling well, you may, you may actually do it, but what's the, what's the real biological problem? It's a lot harder to. It's a lot harder to conceive. We already saw that. So, we want you call it God, call it evolution, call it what you want. Women, you know, certain sense they're in the height of their fertility at 35. But our bodies are meant to start reproducing when we're about 18 or 19, probably about like 15 or 16 these days. That's the body, is, you know, all this evolution is saying, go have children, propagate the species. And now people are getting married much older, which makes chastity much, much more difficult, which in a certain sense is just a, a way unfair. Is it nice that you're older and more mature? Yeah. But here... This is the chance of you conceiving and having a child at 22 much higher than at 35. And so it's they're freezing their eggs for later on down the line, but maybe they're not being told it's going to be much harder for you to conceive. You are probably going to have to do more cycles of IVF and all that. So what does this mean? It means more money. So I got money here for freezing your eggs. And I'm going to have money there because their eggs are not going to implant. And so we're going to probably have to, to harvest some more eggs. Who knows? Thank you. Just, uh, do you know biologically, like, the process of the woman um, having an implanted egg, it would still be, like, whether she had a, the age that she's at, the body will still react the same way? Like, well, no, it's the, the, hard, the older you get, the harder it is to conceive no, I mean, for, you know, like, for so implantation. Like, even if you were having a trying to conceive naturally. 
Correct. Yeah. The, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you see the amount of miscarriages, the amount of things as you get older, it, it does increase. Does increase. So yeah, whether regardless of the means of gestation or conception, it becomes more difficult as you get older. And so here, they're trying to delay so you can have your career, and then the woman is disappointed. And so I'm not saying that there's not a fertility crisis, but I don't know what you're the women that you know that are struggling with infertility, how old are they? Yeah. Usually they feel like their clock, you know, they're like trying to naturally have a baby. They're usually married. They're yeah. usually in a, I guess, a better situation than, well, not always. I have several people I know, not good friends, who were in like same-sex relationships who did idea. Do you know? I mean, well, that goes to the, that goes to the next, that goes to the next. It's a whole other. There, here's a whole other issue of what's called fertility equality. Yeah. If you read that article, that New York Times article I put on there, that that fertility to be able to have a child is an absolute right. right. Trans women can have babies, men can have babies. They don't call them mothers or fathers. And so you see in a lot of this industry of IVF and whatnot are LGBTQ couples who are going to have surrogate mothers who are getting sperm or egg donation. Um, and so, but it's claimed now as a right. And there's also this big push here, and this is where insurance comes in, that insurance has to pay for it because they have a right for it. So here, a normal woman maybe or maybe not could claim to have a right to have a child, but here, because of the political environment, uh, then this fertility equality, you're denying me the right to have a child, even though I'm a man, whatever that means, and I want insurance companies to pay for it. So I mean, a lot of this you could, regardless of, the situation, there is a lot of narcissism. There's a lot of, as, as John said, this commodification of our children, of their looks. Look at me, I have a kid. And particularly the lack, of, another issue is the lack of industry regula regulation. Particularly in some of the research I did on the reporting of embryo loss. So these machines that freeze your eggs Let's say they have 100 eggs in this machine. They're different trays. I don't know how many eggs a machine could hold. They're not, there's no real regulation on these machines, it seems. And so there have been several fertility clinics where, because they were indemnified against anything bad happening, that these cryopreservation tanks failed. And what happens if the cryopreservation tank fails? All of the embryos are lost. And then the couple shows up and says, hey, <clears throat> we want to have another cycle of IVF. And they're like, oh, oops, sorry, the fridge, the fridge broke. You know, the fridge broke. You've lost either your eggs, you've lost of your children, and you have really no recourse. As of 2018, <clears throat> it appears from what I've read, there's no regulation on these cryopreservation tanks. Another issue. <clears throat> the things, again, we, we rush into these things without thinking about all of these ramifications. What do y'all think about <clears throat> the overturning of Roe versus Wade? How is it, po what is the possibility of it returning to the states and the overturning of Roe versus Wade? How could this impact the fertility industry? Now, the progressives, uh, some of the articles I read, are freaking out because now 
They think that in pro-life states, loss of embryos, these companies could be sued by pro-life company uh, organizations uh, for killing or performing a type of abortion by not sustaining the embryos in cryopreservation. So their concern is legally, well, if we're going to consider them humans when it comes to abortion in a certain state, well, how is that going to impact the fertility industry? Um, I, I think these are all very complicated questions, um, particularly in a society where there's not much moral opposition. I also think that this desire for children, while there may be some narcissism, I forgot, I think it was Balthazar who said every child born into the world is a sign that God has not given up on us. So there is a value to want to have children. This is the opposite of abortion. There's a desire to continue the species. There's a, a desire to make the world a better place. What though, again, I kind of end on this, and see it, some of you have seen it. It was a novella written in the 80s, made into a movie in 2006. How many of y'all have either read or seen Children of Men? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, we, we, could, we could watch it maybe for a movie night. We watched it a little bit last year. It's one of my favorite science fiction films, probably top five of the 2000s. Um, it's basically, uh, it's so prescient in so many different ways, but it's, the book is an explicitly Christian book. The movie is not. Um, or written by a Christian author, even though it's not your typical Christian fiction, which is generally garbage. Um, <laughs> but it's a society in the future, it's in England, where there's this pandemic of infertility. And the, 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 the last child born ends up dying. And it sends the world into a panic and there's all this war, refugee immigration problems, um, and come to find out there's a woman who has conceived, and she has to be brought to a, a, a safe haven, and this atheistic cop is bring her there. It is a fantastic movie, um, which we could watch. I could show you all the opening scene, but we only have about five minutes. Um, the opening scene is fantastic. You've seen it, Eric? I've seen parts of it. Yeah. But yet, there are things in culture that are bringing up this question of fertility, of its role. The future of a society, this is, this is a dystopian film, big time. But yet, there's the child, even in the secular world, a child born in the world is a sign of hope. And there's a powerful scene at the end which, which sort of shows that. Even amidst the most bleak, nihilistic worldview, People still go gaga over kids, um, and they are still a sign of hope. So I'm going to close on that, thinking that as bad as things may be, or as they may seem, what is the church's ultimate message? It's a message of the child, its dignity, the child's value, and the child is a sign of hope for the future, and that the more we can promote that hope, the future, genuine human progress and development, and the dignity of the person or the child, I think that's going to be one of our great inroads for hopefully converting minds and converting hearts. Any questions or comments? 
I have one comment. Yes. I saw where China's, uh, they're going to have a really serious problem uh, not having enough people. And they may take this and have all these kids grow without any parents. You know? Yeah, that one child policy is a real significant issue over there. Um, and they're. Really bad yeah. All right, y'all, let's close with the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.